Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. This podcast is brought to you by SavingYouTaxes.com and hosted by J. Barry Watts. As an advanced tax strategist and enrolled agent federally licensed by the IRS, Barry is uniquely qualified to go deeper into the Internal Revenue Code than most accountants. He understands and interprets its provisions explaining how they'll help you reduce income taxes you owe so you can direct that previously wasted tax money into tax-free accounts that you can enjoy in your retirement years. Now, on today's episode... Welcome to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement, where today we're going to focus on investing, learn how money managers get paid, the type of performance that is realistic to expect, and Barry is going to pull back the curtain and share with you some things he does to personally get the best performance possible out of his own accounts. We are required to tell you that today's podcast does not constitute advice which can only be provided in a contracted advisory relationship. So what we are talking about today is in generalities and theories that are not specific to your situation, but which will perhaps give you some good ideas you should discuss with your own financial advisor or CPA. If by chance you don't have those people in your life, you can reach out to us and we'll refer you to a team of professionals who can help you. Now let's go to our host, Jay Barry Watts, and join him in the studio. Well, welcome to the Truth About Taxes and Retirement. I am Barry Watts, along with my co-host, Eric Burleson. Hello. Welcome. We're glad you're here today. Glad to be here. Today, we're going to talk specifically about investing, and we've got a big podcast with a lot of information, so we're going to jump right in deeply. Now, do you remember what we talked about last time we were together, Eric? Last time we did the uh, holes in our buckets, That's dear a- Liza, dear Liza. that's exactly right we talked in our last podcast about how your money is all in a bucket and that bucket is located under a faucet and the faucet is how more money gets into the bucket through interest and dividends and capital appreciation that all come into the bucket through the faucet we talked about how important it is to repair that bucket so it doesn't have any holes that leak money out of it and once those holes are all repaired then and only then should you focus on the faucet that is filling the bucket? So today, Eric, we're going to talk about faucets and about how to construct the proper faucet, perhaps, or about the different types of faucets that exist. Just want to give you a a real overall taste of how you get that bucket filled over time. You good with that? Sounds great. All right. Well, let's start with some facts that might uh, just be of interest to you. Um, practically everyone in the financial industry that you meet wants to talk with you about how their method for filling the bucket is the best method or about how their faucet, if you will, is superior to whatever investment method you're using now. And by investing with them, you'll earn more or make more or have more. And can I just say, I wish that it were really that simple, but it's not. Now, here's an amazing quote from Bloomberg.com. This is dated September 1, so it's only about 60 days old now. They had an article that was entitled, uh, Money Managers Are Punished by a Runaway S&P 500. And here's what it said, quote, Of the roughly 3,700 balanced U.S. mutual funds with a five-year record, just two managed to beat the S&P 500 over the last five years. Ouch. That's less than 1% of money managers 
who beat the S&P 500. Now, I should point out, Eric, by the way, the S&P 500 is our proxy for the market. So when we say the market, what we're really talking about is specifically the S&P 500. So if only 1% of those managers beat the S&P 500, what do you think will happen the next year to that 1% of managers? Well, they, you never know because next year it is a different year. Well, that's true. But uh, statistically, the odds of them being in that top 1% uh, in more it's than very, one year very are unlikely. very slim. Right. It's unlikely that they will repeat at the top of the performance list. So if you're attempting to always hire the manager who beats the market, then you're probably going to be significantly disappointed. It's kind of like driving down a road at 60 miles an hour, looking in your rear view mirror, looking at last year's performance and hoping that that produces next year's results. And that could lead to a great accident. And one of the things that we want to do for folks who retire is help them avoid those great accidents. Because when you're retired, you don't have a lot of time to heal up any brokenness that you might have inadvertently created in your retirement accounts in your portfolio. So it's interesting to note that many mutual fund managers, portfolio managers, as they're called, don't even try to beat the market. And that might surprise you, but um, when you understand how they get paid and how they get bonused, um, it might not surprise you because their compensation is all tied to the S&P 500 in most cases. If they outperform the market, of course, they will get an extra bonus for doing so. But so long as their performance is at the market, or even within a few percentage points of the S&P 500, they'll still get their big bonus checks. And so they can't afford to take risks. Right, right. And well, some of them don't even have to outperform the market. They get the bonus checks, even if they, even if they have positive performance, even if that performance does not meet or exceed the S&P 500 index. That's correct. That's correct. So uh, Institutional Investor had an article that just came out a couple of weeks ago in uh, November uh, that was entitled America's Most Lucrative Portfolio Management Jobs. And Eric, what do you think the average portfolio manager makes in a year? Oh, I would say above a million. Well, that's true. The average, according to Institutional Investor, is $1.37 million a year. I can believe it. A million three hundred seventy thousand dollars for a year. Yeah, I can pretty, believe it. Pretty good coin. I, you know, I was reading a book about from the perspective of one of these money managers, and he was he was approaching a, a dinner meeting with with uh, other investors, and he was embarrassed at how much he was charging his clients, particularly given the fact that he he had not had a great year that year what was he doing taking him to a cheap place for dinner maybe he needed to upgrade <laughs> his reservations right <laughs> well so uh if the average is making 1.37 you know what that means it means there are people on both sides of the average and there will be people making multiple times that 1.37 all the way down to just a few hundred thousand dollars so let's assume that the base pay for that person making 1.37 million is three to four hundred thousand dollars a year that means that their bonus at the end of the year, based on how they perform in relation to the S&P 500, is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars. So you see, if you've got a million dollars in bonus coming, and all you have to do is not screw it up, 
Well, then what that means you're going to do is you're going to structure your fund to make it mimic the S&P 500. So you will get performance that's very similar to the S&P 500, but probably not exceed it. And here's why. In order to exceed it, you have to have an idea. You have to act on that idea. You have to take a wild flyer. And if that flyer turns out, oh my, you might really exceed it and get a big bonus for that. But if the flyer doesn't turn out and your idea doesn't produce the results it should have, well, then your bonus might totally go away. Instead of making 1.3 million that year, you make just your 300,000 that year. So if you know at the beginning of the year, you want to get the bonus and your bonus is going to be tied to the performance of the S&P 500, the easy way to do that is just make sure that your fund mimics the S&P 500. Right. One of the criticisms of, of money managers of mutual funds is that they, uh, because of that timeliness, they don't make decisions that are good potentially for the client or for the fund in the, for the long term right? Because they have got to meet that performance for that year, that year, not what may be better for the entire portfolio for a long term. Does that make sense? So they can't afford to play any waiting games. Well, sometimes their hands are tied by the activities of investors. For example, if investors are, are causing what are called net redemptions, which is where people are taking more money out of the fund because they're scared of the news out there, it could be that the fund manager actually wants to be buying, but he can't buy right then. He's actually having to sell because he's having to raise capital so he'll have cash in the account so he can write checks back to the investors who are leaving the fund. Right. There's all kinds of reasons that cause a money manager to be limited in what their ability to actually beat the market. That's exactly right. So speaking of the market and its performance, uh, do you have any idea over the past 20 years what the S&P 500 has earned? What's the average client tell you when you have that conversation with them? Oh, generally about, about 11%. Yeah, I hear those numbers once in a while. <laughs> well, it might interest no. you to know that, by the way, Lately, you can look- though, it doesn't seem like it's been doing as well. Well, last, last few years. Yeah, no, that's exactly correct. There are lots of resources where you can find this one that I like to look up some data on is uh, one called moneychimp.com. Um, and there you can find that the 20 years ending December 31st of 2019. So starting at Y2K on January 1 and running forward for 20 years, the uh, average compound annual growth rate of the S&P 500 is 6.01%, or just call it 6%, with dividends reinvested. And so it's interesting that you mentioned 11%. Uh, there's a, a famous guy who's all over the radio with a program uh, telling people that they should just go buy a good mutual fund and make 12% per year. Um, and of course, that was perhaps a truth back in the 90s when he first got his securities license, which he no longer holds. Uh, but he hasn't bothered to educate himself any further than that. I had a lawyer in my office about a year ago, and uh, he came and sat down and he said, look, Barry, here's the deal. He said, uh, I, I need to make 12% on my money. And if you can't make 12% on my money, I don't need to have a conversation with you. And I said to him, it's been nice talking to you, but don't let the door hit you in the rear on the way out. Because uh, anybody who's in the financial business who would tell people that they're going to make that kind of return year in, year out on average is, in my view, foolish. And they're not going to be able to deliver that kind of result when the market itself, the S&P 500 itself, is only producing 6%. Think about this. Um, if you could really do 10 or 12% a year when the market's only doing 6%, wouldn't that make you pretty famous? 
Yeah. Would, well, if you consistently could do that. Yeah. And wouldn't it make you pretty rich? And wouldn't some big name company out there pay you a lot of money to be their money manager? Yeah, they would. And the reason that that never happens is because beating the market is very difficult. And that's why in that article we just read about only 1% of those money managers over the past five years had beaten the market that way. Now, let's talk just a moment about percentages, because in the financial industry, we always uh, communicate our performance and our history in terms of percentage. So, Eric, what if I told you that I had an investment that averaged 25%, averaged 25%, would that excite you? That would be very exciting. Yeah, it would be really exciting, wouldn't it? Well, I, I, let me just tell you that does exist. And let me walk you through the math and tell you kind of how it works. Now, let's say that you've got a dollar and you earn 100% on that dollar. How much are you going to have at the end of the year? Well, you'll have $2. You'll have $2. Now, let's say your $2 lost 50%. How much are you going to have at the end of the year? Right. You'll, well, you'll be back to $1. You'll be back to $1. So let's do the math now. So you earned 100% and you lost 50%. So you're positive 50% at this point. And you did that over two years. So 50% divided by two is? 25%. 25%. So congratulations. So you had a 25% investment. That is absolutely true, but it's terribly misleading because when you did the math a minute ago, you said, well, if I had a dollar and I earned hundred percent, it'd be worth $2. And if I lost 50%, that would be back to worth a dollar. So even though you made 25%, you really didn't make any money. Your net return was zero. And that's why it's so important to understand percentages when they're communicated to you. And across the investment industry, there's wide latitude in how companies talk about these percentages and how they present them, just so long as they footnote correctly what they mean when they say X percent. And so the percentages are something that you need to avoid uh, dwelling on because that can be misleading to you over time. So one of the tools that is really helpful to have in your hip pocket as you begin thinking about money is something that we call the rule of 72. And the rule of 72 is a formula for figuring out how long it will take or what interest rate you have to earn in order for your money to double in value. Eric, why don't you take us through the math on the rule of 72? So for example, it, it's a way in which you can quickly determine how, how quickly your, your money is going to double. So for example, if you have 72 and you divide it by say you're earning 6% interest, then it'll take you almost 12 years uh, to, to double your well, money. I'm not good enough at that math. So why don't we say I've got 72 and I divide it by 10 years, if you don't mind. Then we know I've got to earn 7.2% interest to double my money. Yeah, right? that's a good way to put it. Yeah, so so 7.2 times 10 is 72. So you take 72 and divide it by either how long you have or what interest rate you'll get. And you know either what interest rate you have to earn or how many years you have to uh, go before your money will double in value. And so uh, let's take that S&P 500 number we were talking about earlier at 6%. If you take that 6% divided by 72, it tells you that it'll take 11.98 years, almost 12 years for your money to double. So every 12 years, your money ought to double. And, and indeed, that's the way it's worked out. Because if you'd invested a dollar in the S&P back on Y2K, January 1st of 2000, on 1231 of 19, the end of 2019, that dollar would have been worth $3.21. It doubled and then a little more than half again. A dollar became two 
and two didn't double to four, but it went about halfway to four, a dollar's worth $3.21. That's the way the rule of 72 works. So with these ideas in mind, understanding how money multiplies in the rule of 72, understanding why you can't necessarily trust the percentages, and understanding what the historic performance has been on the stock market, let's go back and talk about how to think about investment selection and money manager hiring in light of the idea that the S&P 500 is our standard benchmark. And I'll just tell you right up front, it's not a benchmark that we expect to beat. If we do, that's fabulous, but it's not something we expect to beat year in, year out. If we can be close to it, then that's considered a success. Yeah, especially if you can stay close to it, because when you look at the track record of some of these mutual funds, they don't even come close. That's absolutely true. Do you know how long I've been doing this myself, Eric? I think you said 25 years. 26, actually. We're in year number 26. And let me tell you what it was like when I started in the industry 26 years ago. At that time, if you had cash in your money market account, you were earning 8% on your money market account. If you took it out of your money market account and purchased a bond with it, a typical corporate bond those days was paying 10%. And risk-oriented mutual funds were earning historically about 13% per year. And the reason that I happen to know that is because I was involved with an organization that brought me into the financial industry who was uh, focused on really encouraging us to sell mutual funds uh, and say to people, why would you be happy with that 10% a year when this has earned 13% over a year? And the reason that I think the focus was on that is because there were a lot more fees in those particular mutual funds. But what we were trying to communicate to people then was, well, you could earn 30% more because you earn 13% instead of 10%. Think about it, though, in those days, 25 years ago, if you had retired and you had a million dollars and you put that million dollars in a 10% 30-year bond, you're kind of set because your income right. is going to be a hundred thousand dollars a year every year for the next 30 years of retirement. Yeah. Now, but now they would probably call those bonds. Well, yes, those bonds would definitely be called called means being, being taken away from you early, redeemed early. And so let's compare what happened then to what happens today. So in those days, cash was earning about 8%. Today, I just looked up the rate uh, at at Bank America before I came into the studio here. Bank America is paying 0.01% on their money market account. So that's not really a valid option. Bonds today, I looked up the St. Louis Fed rate. And if you want a 10-year government bond, it's paying 0.88%. A 10-year corporate bond is paying 2.15%. So remember the guy who 26 years ago retired and put all of his money in bonds because he got a right. 10% distribution from those bonds. Today, he's trading that for a, a 2% distribution at best. Instead of getting $100,000 a year off of a million dollars, now he gets $20,000 a year off his million dollars. And today, the historic return of the stock market for the past 20 years we've already established is 6%. So here's what happens. When you go to retire today, you can no longer just put your money into a portfolio of bonds and enjoy the earnings that come from that. Retirees are forced to take more risk by putting more of their money into risk-oriented, stock market-oriented, mutual fund kinds of investments. 
And the problem with taking that more risk was really brought home to us here in March of 2020, when the pandemic first set in. In less than 30 days, how much did the stock market lose, Eric? Oh, it dropped over 30%. 34% is the actual number that the market lost in less than 30 days. And so if that happens, a lot of times when you retire and you suddenly lose 34% of the market, mm -hmm. you'll remember there's a certain question that you start asking, and it is, well, do you want fries with that? <laughs> Do you want fries with that? That's exactly right. right. Because, because a lot of times you have to go back to work. You know, and this is not just, just individual investors. This, is, this has impacted the pension funds all across the nation. Um, in this, I know in our state, state of Missouri, our pension systems are becoming uh, a lot more risky in, their, in uh, where they're investing money because in order for them to meet the requirements and keep that pension fund fully or to keep it funded at the levels that it's required, they've got to engage in more risk. So and they so, built that fund back in the day when they were earning 10% on their bonds. Right. And now they're earning 2% and what do they have to do? And because you've got retirees that they've promised the, uh, the, uh, a paycheck to in their retirement, they have got to chase more risky investments. And welcome to the state of Illinois, but that's another topic we won't go into right now. So the question is, what should a retiree do in an environment like this where interest rates are so low and where it's only risky if you put your money into stock-oriented, risk-oriented investments? Well, we don't know who's listening right now, and they aren't our clients. And SavingYouTaxes.com is not an investment advisor. Now, we have a sister company that is, but that's not who we're talking about today. So instead of talking about what you should do and giving advice, I'm just going to tell you, Eric, what I do. And whether you do this or whether you don't do this is totally up to you. But this is how I, after 26 years in the financial markets, manage my own money in order to do two things, to get market-like performance when the markets are going up and to help protect myself and cut my losses when the markets are going down. So the first thing I do is I allocate between what I'll call risk and low-risk money. And that category of risk could be stocks, could be uh, mutual funds, could be options. Those are things that all fall into the risk category. And when I say low risk, we're usually talking about bonds in some form or another. And it's important to understand that low risk doesn't mean absolutely zero risk. It just means much lower volatility. So while there may be some price change, but it's, it's not going to be tremendously significant on the value of your account. Now, when we put something into risk, here's the way I want to do it. I want it personally to be as if my account were invested in the S&P 500. So I want S&P 500 kind of performance out of my account. But I don't want to take that risk. I don't want to take a dollar and put it into the S&P 500. And then March hits and suddenly my dollar is only worth 66 cents in a period of less than 30 days. So since I don't want to take that risk, I have another way of approaching the S&P 500. What I do is I figure out how many S&P 500 option contracts I'd have to own in order for it to be like my entire investment was in the S&P 500. And based on where the market is today, that's something like 8% of my portfolio would need to go into S&P 500 options. That number ranges. I've seen it as low as three. I've seen it as high as nine. Right now, we're on the higher end of that range. So if I had a million dollars, I would have to take about $80,000 and put into S&P 500 options in order to control a million dollars worth of stock. Now, here's what we know about options. 
options magnify the performance of the underlying thing being optioned. So when things are really good in the market, it means they are absolutely great with my options. And when things are bad in the market, my option performance are, will be terrible and I will lose everything that I have in the option. And in that case, it means I would lose my 8%. But that's the worst thing that can happen is I lose my 8%. Now, Eric, if you knew the worst thing that could happen was you were going to lose 8%, how would you feel about that it? That would be better than losing 30 or 40. And that's kind of why I do this. So I set aside a, a portion of money, in this case, we'll say it's 8%, to take risk with it, because when the market performs, it really does outstandingly well. And then I take the other 92% of my money, and I put it over in the low risk, low volatility categories, where we buy government bonds, corporate bonds, closed in bond funds, and even sometimes fixed indexed annuities, which we will explain in a later podcast. Uh, now, in general, that other 92% of my money uh, that's not in the options, that money is going to earn something like a whopping 2% return over the year. Woo! Yeah, that's not it. That's not a a lot to get excited about there. Well, it might be excited if the market went down 34 and right. you'd be excited that's about your 2%. Yeah, and that's, that's really kind of the whole point. Uh, because if you'll think about that, when things get dicey in the stock market, one of the things that people historically have done is they move out of stocks and into bonds. And that's called by the commentators a flight to quality when they move into the less volatile bonds and away from stocks. So let's understand this idea of being less volatile or less risky. And realize that I'm speaking in relative terms and not absolute terms when I say this. When we buy an individual bond for $100,000, we know what the interest rate will be. Let's say it's 2%. And we know that that bond is going to be worth, when it matures, $100,000. But in the meantime, that bond is going to fluctuate in value. And the reason it does that is because something could come up and you might want to sell that bond before it matures. And if you did, you need to be able to sell it at what it's worth on that particular day because a buyer has to be willing to buy it. So I call the price that gets reported out daily the emergency liquidation value. That's what the bond would be worth if you sold it before it matured based on what interest rates are at that particular time. So the emergency liquidation value is going to fluctuate. It's going to go up and down. It's not going to have near the volatility typically that stocks have, but it will change from time to time. So if let's say I have this 5% uh, bond and interest rates drop to 3% and I suddenly had to or wanted to liquidate my bond, what would happen if I had a 5% bond and interest rates had dropped to 3%? Well, be, well because your bond would be paying out better than what the, the normal market would be, then your bond would be sold at a premium. That's so exactly right. you'd be right. able to sell it for better than what you purchased. It so for. I'd sell it for more than the $100,000 exactly. because it's a premium bond. Now, the... Uh, opposite side of that same coin is if I have a 5% bond and interest rates jump up to 7% and something happens and I need to sell my bond, then I'm going to have to cut the price of that bond to get somebody else to buy it. And that early redemption penalty is what I would call that. 
uh, happens to be called selling at a, what's the word for it? Well, at a loss. At a loss, but the word is a discount, not a premium, right, but right. a discount. So, so, it'll discount. So, so bond prices, the emergency liquidation value come in premiums and a discount. So let's go through in this whole scheme. If I had 92% of my money over in that bond category, the lower risk category, if I had 8% of my money in the option category, let's go through what would happen if the stock market goes up. Now, remember that options magnify the underlying asset that I've invested in. So if the S&P 500 goes up in value, my option will go up in value. A lot. Uh, yeah, a lot. A multiple of the S&P 500. In fact, right now I'm seeing options mature where they have increased in value 150% to 250% of my original investment. And that's pretty exciting. In fact, if you were foolish, it could lead you to do something stupid, which is double down and put more money in options than you ought to. And remember, we just limit it to whatever amount right. is required right. to give us enough shares to control the portfolio value in the S&P 500. And so when we take that gain that I said, in some cases, I was seeing of 150 or 250%. And when we spread that back over the value of the entire portfolio, we will find that the option will give will have given us something like S&P 500 market-like gains, even though we only risked 8% in our portfolio. Meanwhile, the 92% over in the lower risk category is just steadily and boringly generating about 2% per year for us. So we made all of our money in the options, really. And then the other portfolio with the the low risk money just kind of tossed an extra 2% extra in the pot to start filling up our bucket. That's the way our faucet is working. So when combined, the options and the lower risk category are going to give me market-like upside performance. Now, Eric, you know that the market doesn't always go up every year. Sometimes it goes down. That's exactly right. And when it does, what's going to happen to the 8% that I have invested in options? Well, you could, honestly, you could lose all of it. That's absolutely right. If the market goes down, I will wind up losing my 8% that I have invested in options. And so I'm still going to make the 2% that I had from my lower risk bond type investments. And that's going to mitigate my loss. So let's say the market loses 35%. I lose 8% in my options. I'm still going to gain the 2% on bonds. So my total loss is going to be just a little more than 6% in my portfolio when the entire market lost 35%. Right. Assuming that the, uh, the bonds are the interest rates are not affecting those bombs. And you're, we're only talking about what you're getting in the coupon. That's exactly right. You know, odd times could result in a different kind of result, but this is a traditionally kind of how this would work. And so I liken this to having a circuit breaker that trips when things uh, get difficult and it protects my portfolio before I lose everything. You know, in your basement or maybe in your utility closet, you've got that gray panel right. and you open it and it's right. got all those switches that you can flip when suddenly the TV doesn't work. Yeah, or when all of the women in your house use the hairdryer at the same time. That happens too, yeah. I, it's been a while. My house has been emptier of women since the girls all grew up and went away. But no, that can happen. You flip all the circuit breakers because you've got too much heat on that particular circuit. Well, when the market starts going down, falling precipitously, it goes down 35%. That's too much heat on your portfolio and your portfolio will melt down if we don't trip the circuit breaker. 
And this strategy of using a blend between options and lower risk, lower volatility bonds effectively functions as a circuit breaker. And so, Eric, that's personally how I handle investing in my own portfolio. So I hope that sharing that with you and with our audience is helpful to folks today in just giving them an idea about some things that are available that can protect them from significant market loss when things go bad and allow them to continue participating in the market when things are going well. Now, here are some very important reminders that I have to mention for the legal eagles out there, uh, because uh, we have legal eagles uh, on our staff team uh, who are retained to tell us what we can do and what we can't do and what we can say and how we can say it. And so they said, everybody needs to pay attention to this, okay? Past performance doesn't guarantee future results. In fact, there are no guarantees except for death and taxes. And we can show you how to avoid those, but that's another podcast. Investment always involves risk. You can lose real money and experience real losses. I was talking with a guy once who had lost money, and I said to him, well, you knew you could lose money. In fact, the prospectus said that you could lose money. And he said, well, I thought that was just theoretical. <laughs> well, it is just theoretical until it happens and you really lose your money, and then it really happened. And so you, you really can lose money in investing. And uh, I just told you in this case what I was doing. I didn't say that you should do that. In fact, savingyoutaxes.com doesn't give investment advice, and neither do I personally give investment advice on this podcast. So if you need investment advice, then you can reach out to us and we'll introduce you to our sister company through which investment advice is offered. And you can learn how a full analysis of your circumstances can be obtained and how you might be able to get specific advice that fits your situation. So if you'd like to know how to build a faucet, like the one I described above, then reach out to us at savingyourtaxes.com, and we'll help you get in touch with a fiduciary investment advisor who is duty-bound to provide conflict-free advice that's in your personal best interests. That's it for today, Eric. You've been a good co-host. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for having me. Well, very good. You've been listening to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement. And on behalf of my co-host, Eric Burleson, I'm Barry Watts, here to remind you that even though you build a good faucet, if you don't get the taxes right, nothing else matters. Thank you for listening to The Truth About Taxes and Retirement Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of SavingYouTaxes.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional tax and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your own qualified advisor with any questions you may have regarding taxes and investing.